The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church 18 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC18. This is Secret Church 18, Episode 6. Number three tonight is Catholicism, and this one is particularly sensitive. So uh, immediately people ask, wait, wait, are you calling Catholicism a cult? Um, We even had some drop out of Secret Church who were planning on doing it tonight. We decided not to when they realized we were talking about, we'd be talking about Catholicism. So why would I include this here? And maybe some of you were surprised to see it. Maybe even offended to see it. Here's what I want to do, uh, particularly because I'm guessing that it's more likely that people with Catholic backgrounds or even attend Catholic churches right now might be a part of Secret Church, maybe more so than Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. So let's dive together into what the Catholic Church teaches officially. Let me emphasize again, just because the Catholic Church teaches the doctrine doesn't mean every single Catholic believes that doctrine. But much like we discussed with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, there is an official leadership and governance structure, official teachings that mark the Catholic Church. So let's see what the Catholic Church teaches, and then let's ask the question, is Catholicism a cult, or is Catholicism a counterfeit gospel? Is it both? Is it neither? So let's ask the question, who are Catholics? Here's a general definition. Catholicism Catholicism refers to the faith, practices, and system of government of the Roman Catholic Church, of which the Pope, or the Bishop of Rome, is the head. Keep going here. Catholicism claims to originate with Christianity and to carry on a line of successive popes, beginning with St. Peter, who governed the church with authority. We'll dive more into that as we go. When it comes to global population, from 1910 to 2010, the global Catholic population grew from 291 million to nearly 1.1 billion. Billion people, 1.1 billion people. Catholics have steadily comprised approximately half of the global Christian population and approximately 16% of the entire global population. In other words, Catholicism is huge. And it's interesting, even when you look at geographic migration, in 1910, 65% of Catholics lived in Europe, 24% lived in Latin America. A hundred years later, in 2010, 24% of Catholics lived in Europe and 39% in Latin America and the Caribbean. That is a massive shift, particularly away from Europe. In 1910, approximately 1 million Catholics, less than 1% of the global Catholic population lived in sub-Saharan Africa. 100 years later, in 2010, approximately 171 million Catholics. About 16% of the global Catholic population lived in sub-Saharan Africa. 1 million to 171 million. And then when it comes to North America, in 1910, approximately 15 million, 5% of Catholics lived in North America. By 2010, approximately 89 million, 8% of Catholics lived in North America. 89 million, a pretty significant increase. So what does Catholicism teach? And from the start, we need to see that there are major similarities between what I'll call tonight, evangelical Protestantism and Catholicism. And by evangelical Protestantism, Protestantism what, which I'll flesh out more as we go, I mean gospel believing. That's what evangelical is supposed to mean. The problem is it's become a political label in the United States today in extremely un- unfortunate ways. But don't think politics. Think gospel believing Protestantism, a term that would refer to significant break that happened in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries from the Catholic Church. But even with some of the differences between Catholicism and evangelical Protestantism, which we'll look at in a minute, there are major similarities on the Trinity. So the Catholic Church teaches all the truths that we emphasize at the start of our time tonight about the one true God. God is one. God's revealed himself as three persons. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is basically a systematic statement of the Catholic Church's teaching, states, we do not confess three gods, but one God and three persons. The consubstantial Trinity, the divine persons do not share the one divinity among themselves, but each of them is God, whole and entire. The Father is that which the Son is. The Son is that which the Father is. The Father and the Son, that which the Holy Spirit is and i.e. by nature one God. I think it's important to mention here just to clear up any misunderstanding that Catholicism does not consider Mary as part of the Trinity. We'll talk about what Catholicism teaches about Mary, but it's definitely not that. Then similar to teaching about the Trinity is teaching on Jesus. According to Catholicism, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Catholicism teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, was buried, and was resurrected from the dead. And many other doctrines have general similarities. The sinfulness of humanity, the necessity of or the need for salvation, 
and numerous social issues, sinfulness, salvation, social issues. Think abortion, religious liberty, other social issues. So there's some major similarities. There are also miscellaneous differences, some of which are extremely significant. For example, on scripture and authority, Catholicism teaches three sources of authority. So you have the Bible, which, and I didn't put this in your notes, includes additional books called the Apocrypha, which we talked about last year at Secret Church. But then on top of the Bible, you have two other sources of authority. You have tradition. So the catechism of the Catholic Church teaches. As a result, the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored to follow this with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That's a huge statement. Revealed truth doesn't come from Scripture alone. You also need church tradition, and it's honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Then, in addition to Scripture and tradition, you have the magisterium, which is the teaching ministry of the church and the authority of the pope. So because Catholicism believes that the Pope is in a succession line going all the way back to Peter, and Catholicism believes that Christ entrusted unique authority to Peter, then when the Pope speaks, he speaks with the authority of God. The Catechism teaches the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. Hear this, the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. That's huge. And the implications are huge. This was a major contribution of Vatican I, a council convened by Pope Pius IX in 1869 and 70 because it established the doctrine of papal infallibility. Hear this. If then, by, if then any shall say that the Roman pontiff has the office merely of inspection or direction and not full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the universal church, not only in things which belong to faith and morals, but also in those which relate to the discipline and government of the church spread throughout the world, or assert that he possesses merely the principal part and all of the fullness of this supreme power, or that power which he enjoys is not ordinary and immediate, both over each and all the churches and over each and all the pastors and the faithful, let him be anathema. This is the teaching of Catholic truth from which no one can deviate without loss of faith and salvation. What Vatican I established was that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from his seat as Pope in official capacity, then what he says is supremely authoritative and completely infallible. In other words, perfect. And this declaration of Vatican I in and of itself was deemed authoritative. So you put all that together, the Catholic Church clearly teaches there are three sources of authority. In the words of the Catechism, it's clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the Church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. Working together, each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. That is extremely different than evangelical Protestantism, which claims that Scripture alone is authoritative. Authoritative. Scripture alone. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and we dare not add or take away from it in the words of Revelation 22, 18, and 19. I won't spend a lot of time here because we spent six hours in the last secret church on this, but I cannot overestimate, overemphasize the significance of this on Scripture and authority. Then on Mary, Catholicism teaches that Mary is the Holy Mother of God. In the words of the Catechism, we believe that the Holy Mother of God, the new Eve, Mother of the Church, continues in heaven to exercise her maternal role on behalf of the members of Christ. Catholicism teaches that Mary was preserved from original sin and pure from all sin in her life. From among the descendants of Eve, God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son. Full of grace, Mary is the most excellent fruit of redemption. From the first instant of her conception, she was totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. Pretty shocking statement. And according to Catholicism, devotion to Mary and saints is intrinsic to worship. Those aren't my words. The words of the Catholic Church, the Church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. The Church rightly honors the Blessed Virgin with special devotion. For the most ancient times, the Blessed Virgin has been honored with the title Mother of God, to whose protection the faithful fly in all their dangers and needs. We fly to Mary for protection. In a similar way, though not near the same with saints. 
Evangelical Protestantism is much different. Mary is honored as a godly woman who bore the Son of God incarnate, but does not attribute sinless purity to Mary, does not see her as intrinsic to worship, quite the opposite, sees any worship given to Mary as a form of idolatry. And then on sin, so we mentioned both Catholicism and evangelical Protestantism teach human depravity, but Catholicism varies in that Catholicism teaches two types of sin, mortal sin, which destroys the saving grace of God, and venial sin, which does not destroy the saving grace of God. In the words of the Catechism, mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God, who is his ultimate end and his beatitude by preferring an inferior good to him. Venial sin allows charity to subsist, even though it offends and wounds it. In evangelical Protestantism, there is no dual concept of sins. No dual concept of sins. Seen or taught anywhere in Scripture. Then on the sacraments, Catholicism teaches that grace is infused in the very act of the sacraments. So in baptism, when one one is baptized, the grace of God for salvation is infused into them. Similarly, at confirmation, the Eucharist, which is the taking of the Lord's Supper, confession, anointing of sick, holy orders, and matrimony or other sacraments. And again, each of those acts is important for obtaining grace. And I use that word obtaining intentionally in light of what we're about to see. Evangelical Protestantism does not teach that. Evangelical Protestantism teaches that grace is offered as the sacraments are taken in faith in connection with the gospel. Namely, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So let's drill down a little deeper on both those. On baptism and Catholicism, baptism is the act through which the new birth occurs in the life of an infant. The Catechism teaches, born with a fallen human nature, tainted by original sin, children also have need of the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God to which all men are called. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation is particularly manifest in infant baptism. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. You hear that? Baptism is necessary to obtain this grace as soon as possible after birth. For at the point of baptism, all sins are forgiven, including original sin and personal sins, as well as punishment for sin. Catechism says by baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as punishment for sin. And those who have been reborn, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God. Neither Adam's sin nor personal sin nor the consequences of sin, the gravest of which is separation from God. Baptism is then completed at confirmation. And I use both those words intentionally. The catechism teaches, it must be explained to the faithful, the reception of the sacrament of confirmation is necessary for the completion of baptismal grace. For by the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized are more perfectly bound to the church and are enriched with a special strength of the Holy Spirit. Hence they are, as true witnesses of Christ, more strictly obliged to spread and defend their faith by word and deed. So again, you're seeing, don't miss it, how participation in the sacraments is necessary to be infused with the grace of God. In evangelical Protestantism, though, baptism represents the new birth that has already occurred in the life of a believer. Baptism is a testimony to saving grace received, not a means of receiving grace. Matthew 28, Romans 6. We'll come back to why this is so important in a minute. But then on the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Catholicism teaches transubstantiation. I don't know when the last time at 10 o'clock at night you were writing the word transubstantiation, but uh, transubstantiation. So that's how you spell it. Here's what that means. It's actually in your notes. Look at, look at the catechism there at the end. Uh, according to the catechism of the Catholic Church, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God. And this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, where there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church, is fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. So in the the Lord's Supper, a substantial change takes place whereby the bread and the wine become the corporeal presence of Christ, which is totally different, totally different than evangelical Protestantism where fellowship, thanksgiving, remembrance, and proclamation mark the Lord's Supper. I put remembrance there in that blame because this is what the meal is about. 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now in just a minute, I'm going to show why this is so significant, not just for how we understand the Lord's Supper, but for how we understand salvation, 
Let me hit one more difference here on confession. Catholicism teaches that confession, called penance, reconciles one with God. In confession, a sinner confesses mortal sins to a priest, and a priest imposes acts of penance and offers forgiveness of sins. In the words of the catechism, since Christ entrusted to his apostles the ministry of reconciliation, bishops who are their successors and priests, the bishops' collaborators, continue to exercise this authority. Indeed, bishops and priests, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, have the power, follow this, have the power to forgive all sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In contrast, evangelical Protestantism teaches the priesthood of the believer, that Jesus is our great high priest who through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, Hebrews 4, has made it possible for all of us to go to God through Jesus and receive forgiveness of our sins through him alone, not another mediator like the priest in Catholicism. In the words of 1 Peter 2, all believers comprise a royal priesthood. Now, these differences all lead to the massive difference between Catholicism and in evangelical Protestantism, and that difference is over justification, which is arguably, arguably the most important question there is, like in the world, <laughs> the most important question there is, and in your life, the most important question there is. So here, here it is. Here's the question. How can I, a sinner, be reconciled to God who is holy? How can I, as a sinner, be reconciled to God who is holy? That's a really important question. Because apart from an answer to that question, you and I are separated from God who is holy forever. This is man's greatest problem. It's the greatest problem in every single one of our lives. How can we be reconciled to God? There's not a person on the planet for whom this question is not eternally important. And Catholicism and evangelical Protestantism answer these questions subtly, but totally different. Evangelical Protestantism teaches that sinners are justified by God solely through faith in Christ. Solely being the key word, faith alone, sola fide, faith alone. Catholicism, on the other hand, teaches that sinners are justified by God through faith in Christ and through their own works. In other words, Catholicism teaches that faith and works both lead to justification. In order to be reconciled to God, you need both faith and works. So, Hear this teaching from the Council of Trent, which was a response to the Protestant Reformation. Again, when you hear this, don't just think, oh, that was what a group said back between 19, or 1545 and 1563, so it doesn't really apply now. That's part of the point of showing you the three sources of authority in Catholic Church for the tradition, the teaching ministry of the church, no matter how long ago they happened, are authoritative just as Scripture is. So there's this authoritative teaching from the Catholic Church. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and it's not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema, condemned. Same language Paul used in Galatians 1 to refer to anybody who's preaching a false gospel, the Catholic Church and the Council of Trent uses that language to pronounce condemnation on anybody who says, teaches, that faith alone is sufficient to justify sinners before a holy God. Another quote from Trent, if anyone says that the faith which justifies is nothing else but trust and the divine mercy which pardons sins because of Christ or that it's trust alone by which we're justified, let him be anathema. So these sections of Trent are clearly against faith alone for justification. And the catechism offers perspective on what's required for justification. In the words of the catechism, the grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us, that is to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. You notice the last three words there? And through baptism, faith and sacrament, faith and baptism. Trent, if anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also not Increase before God by good works, though those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase, let him be anathema. In other words, your works are increasing your justification before God. They're not the fruit of your justification before God. So the way this works, this is how a priest in my neighborhood described it to me. He said, grace is infused into you supernaturally through work. This begins at baptism 
And this carries on into other sacraments of the church. As you attend Mass, you participate in the Eucharist, and so on. Through the observance of the commandments of God and the church, faith cooperating with good works, believers increase in that justice received through the grace of Christ and are further justified. So you're being justified as you work, and you work hard. That same priest in my neighborhood described it to me as a theology of covering bases. And basically said, you want to cover as many bases as you possibly can. Because future justification is possible, but not guaranteed. I, you can't be sure of your salvation. Trent says if one considers his own weakness and his defective disposition, he may well be fearful and anxious as to the state of grace, as nobody knows with the certainty of faith, which permits of no error, that he has achieved the grace of God. Nobody knows. There's a reason why when I talk with almost any Catholic person I know about Jesus, and I ask, do you know for sure if you're going to heaven, the almost inevitable answer is, I hope so. I hope so, but I don't know. And Trent reinforces that sense of doubt, saying if anyone says that the guilt is remitted to every penitent sinner after the grace of justification has been received, then the debt of eternal punishment is so blotted out that there remains no debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not good news. That's not the gospel. People who believe this need to hear the gospel. The good news of God's grace. Not the bad news about how you can obtain grace. If you obtain it, it's not grace. What makes grace good news is you can't obtain it. You can't earn it. It's a gift given to you. That's the good news. So we're not talking about the bad news about how you can obtain grace. So this is who... Catholics are what Catholicism teaches. It leads to the question, how do we share the gospel with Catholics? And in asking that question, I'm obviously implying that Catholics, at least Catholicism, does not officially teach the gospel. To use the language of a counterfeit gospel, that the Catholic doctrine of justification is a fraudulent imitation of the gospel that deceives. So you just think about it with me. You decide. My exhortation to followers of Christ would be to engage Catholic friends and neighbors and coworkers in conversation of the gospel about the gospel and to proclaim justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone with passion. Because that word alone is not just an issue of semantics. It makes the gospel message we proclaim totally different than what we just saw in Catholicism. I mean, another way to put that, if we proclaim justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we are proclaiming a different gospel than the Catholic Church. To take things one step further, we are actually at that point, if we're saying that, we're, we're actually preaching a gospel that has been condemned by the Catholic Church. But it's the gospel according to the Bible. Romans 3.23, right in the middle there, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Galatians 2.15, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Go to the end, Galatians 2.21. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if we could gain righteousness through our works, then we do not need Christ. Contrary to what we've seen in Catholic teaching, the Bible clearly teaches that justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus. Just unpack that. Step by step, justification is the gracious act of God. God, follow this, justifies us not because of anything in us, but because of grace in him. This is not something we achieve. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand Psalm 130? Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ears my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. You might say, well, God justifies those who have faith, so that means we do something. But this is where the Bible teaches God gives faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Faith is a gift that God 
gives to us. So it's, it's kind of like, even when we put our faith in him, it's kind of like my kids, when they want to give me a birthday or a Christmas present, then they go out and use money I give them to buy me a gift. Like, they're like, oh, we really want to get you something. Okay, can you give us some money? Ah. <laughs> in the end, did they really give me a gift? Yeah. And no, no. Because <laughs> they were only able to give me what I gave them. So with faith before God, it's a gift that he gives to us. It's the only way we're able to trust in him. And God, as God gives us faith, God grants us justification. It's all grace. Listen to the language of the Bible. We are passive in this thing. Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We are justified by God. Not we justify ourselves. He justifies us. Passive. Romans 4.16. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. So justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares. So here's the deal. Biblically, justification is a declaration and this is significant because justification is an act, not a process. It's a once-for-all declaration. It's not a process whereby we're more justified tomorrow than we are today. Once you de you're declared justified, you are justified. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is a legal declaration. The word picture of justification in the Bible is that of a judge declaring his judgment. It's a legal pronouncement. End of a trial, judge pronounces either innocent or guilty. That's a pronouncement. That's what justification is. Remember, that's the problem that was set up all throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 23, 7, God says he will not acquit the wicked. God will not say the wicked are innocent. He's just. You see the picture of legal declaration in Matthew 12, Romans 2, Romans 3. This is a legal declaration. You're either declared innocent or guilty. And it's an eternal declaration, a once-for-all completed decision. Think Luke 23. It's a picture of this thief on the cross. He's declared right before God based on his confession of faith in Jesus. Based on that, he will go to heaven. Romans 8 is an awesome promise that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justi justified, he also glorified. Like, done deal. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons in the present nor the future or any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once you've been justified before God, declared right before God, nothing will ever make you wrong before God. Your justification is sure. So justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner. So this is key. Obviously we've covered this, but it's important to remember that people we're talking about here, you and me, are guilty sinners before a holy judge. Martin Luther said, here's a problem which needs God to solve it. The sinfulness of man, the righteousness of God, and the demands of the law. You put those things, three things together in the courtroom, a law, somebody who's broken the law, and a just judge, and things are not looking good for us. We stand before this judge, and the result is we are condemned by our immorality, all of our actions that break God's law. We've all broken God's law, right? James 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. So we're condemned by our immorality and, catch this, I mentioned this earlier, we're condemned by our morality, all of our attempts to keep law, God's law, meaning all of our efforts to obey the law, to do good, all our righteous deeds fall way short. Isaiah 64, 6, they are like a polluted garment. Romans 3, 20, by the works of the law, no human being would be justified in God's sight. Since through the law come knowledge of sin, in the words of one Puritan pastor, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. So you have no case. You have no case before a holy God. We are guilty. You cannot earn the favor of God. We are guilty before God, a sinner. And justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous. Now that is amazing. A holy God, the holy judge of the universe, takes a guilty sinner who stands before him in willful rebellion with nothing in that sinner that would cause him to make any declaration but guilty, condemned, eternally guilty and condemned. And God looks at him and says, not guilty, innocent. God in justification declares that we are forgiven of sin. God has, Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Oh, this is a great word here in your notes. Propitiation. We've seen it already in Romans 3. We are free from all guilt. That's what that word means. It means Jesus has taken our condemnation for us. He has turned aside God's wrath from you and me, taken upon himself instead. It's Romans 3. We read it earlier. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith so that you get to the end there. Verse 26, we may be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. First John 2, Jesus Christ is the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But even, that's not even all. As if that's not enough, it's not all. Because if God were merely to declare us forgiven from our sins, that would make us morally neutral before God. It would be a declaration that we haven't done anything wrong to pay for, but it would not be a declaration we've done anything right. We want to be right before God, not morally neutral. And this is where we realize that to be declared righteous doesn't just, doesn't just mean God declares us forgiven of all our sins. In justification, God declares that we are clothed in holiness. That our lives are clothed, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, in righteousness and sanctification and redemption in Christ. This is what it means to be justified. Not just propitiation, we're free from guilt, but imputation, we are credited with his righteousness. This word means that God imputes to us or credits to us the very righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you and me, he doesn't see a guilty sinner. He doesn't see morally neutral, okay. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. How is that possible? How in the world is that possible? I am. So glad you asked. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous. How is that possible? Solely through faith in Jesus. What can you do to have to earn this kind of status before God? What can you do? Nothing. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Just says the same thing over and over and over again. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Follow Follow this. We hit it on earlier in the night. Now we're drilling down deeper. Christ is the basis of our justification. So in order for you and I to be righteous before God, we need somebody else's righteousness because we're not righteous, Right? So if I ask you, how do you know if you're right before God, if the first words out of your mouth are, because I, then you've missed the point. How are you right before God? Because I did, no, 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 no. How do you know you're right before God? Because Jesus lived a life I couldn't live. He died the death I deserved to die, and he conquered the enemy I couldn't conquer, sin and death. It's all because of Jesus. He is the basis of our justification. He's everything. Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. God demonstrates his love for us in this. Christ died for us as sinners, and we have now been justified by his blood, saved from his wrath. A few verses before that, the Bible celebrates. Therefore, since we've been justified with faith, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it? Justified by faith. Faith is the means of our justification. And think about it. Why faith? Like, why are we justified by faith alone? Why not love? Why not joy? Why not wisdom? Why has God ordained faith to be the means of our justification? Here's why. Because faith is the anti-work. Faith is the realization. There's nothing you can do. No amount of love you can show, kindness, joy, obedience, nothing you can do but trust in what's been done for you. Faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we come to Christ in faith, we're essentially saying, I give up. I will not depend on myself or my good works anymore. I can never make myself right before you. So I trust you and I depend on you completely to give me a righteous standing before you. And this is where we have to always be aware of dangerous legalism dangerous legalism, thinking that our work before God can make us right before him. It's what people in Galatians were doing. Paul says, you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. He asks in chapter three, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now legalism is a word that's sometimes thrown around fairly aimlessly. So what is it? What is legalism? Legalism summarizes working in our own power to try to obey God's and our own, obey God's commands in our own power. Legalism is working according to our own laws Legalism is adding rules to God's commands. So it's legalistic, for example, to say, as a Christian, you should not eat McDonald's hamburgers. That's adding to the rules. So I mentioned McDonald's. I think that applies pretty globally. Uh, I was thinking about India. So you go to McDonald's in India. Uh, 
You might get excited until you remember that the cow is sacred in India, so you won't find hamburgers. You will find lamb burgers, though. Pretty creative. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I missed the point. Back to the point. There are all kinds of examples of how we come up with additional rules beyond what we have in the New Testament as a standard for our faith in Christ and walk with Christ. So legalism is working on our own power according to our own rules. Ultimately, it's working to earn God's favor. It's thinking that in your actions, you are meriting favor before God, earning acceptance before God. I need to pray, read the Bible, I need to go to church, I need to participate in the Lord's Supper, do these things if I want to be accepted by God. When that misses the whole point of salvation, thinking that in doing these things, you're gaining credits before God, you are already credited with the righteousness of Christ. What will you add to that? And in the process of working to earn God's favor, you end up working to steal God's glory because you're undercutting the beauty of what he has done for you. He alone, he gives all the grace so that he gets all the glory. Run from legalism, from dangerous legalism to divine love. The Christian says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, Christian, feel this verse. Jesus is passionate about you. He loves you. He gave himself for you. I just let this so again. Remember, you're sitting in a house, church building in this room, for you, for you, for you, right? We're saying he's passionate about you. Jesus has paid a price for you. His life and his death given for you, right? We're sitting. And take heart. God's pleasure in you is not based upon your performance for him. We think it is sometimes. That's how all the religions of the world operate, and we smuggle it into Christianity. Do this, do this, do this, and you will be all right before God. When God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. No, God's pleasure in you is based on Christ's performance for you. That's huge. This truth in justification is so key. It's why Martin Luther said the article of justification, another word for the doctrine of justification, the law is divine and holy. Let the law have its glory, but yet no law, be it ever so divine and holy, ought to teach me that I am justified and shall live through it. I grant it may teach me that I ought to love God and my neighbor, also to live in love, soberness, patience, etc. but it ought not to show me how I should be delivered from sin, the devil, death, and hell. Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me, that he has suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. This gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article of justification well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's what I'm trying to do tonight. Just like beat your head. 10.30 at night. You say, well, well, doesn't God want us to pray and be kind and love others and share the gospel? Absolutely he does. But such works are the evidence of our justification. And now, now huh, this can get confusing because you read in James, James 2.24 here, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. Isn't that the total opposite of what we're saying here? And that opposite of what Paul says in Galatians 2, which we looked at. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the deal? But again, this is where we always we need to be students of the Bible, studying the Bible in context. You look at the broader context surrounding James 2.24. Look at the verses that come right before it. Listen to this. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Then you come to verse 24. Notice here how James is clearly talking about how a faith that doesn't lead to works is no faith at all. He uses Abraham as an example. He says, it's true. Abraham believed God. That was credited him as righteousness by belief. But that belief then became evident in the way he offered his son Isaac on the altar. His faith led to works. Those works were not the means of his justification before God. That was faith, belief alone. His works were evidence of his justification before God. So you put it together, Christ the basis. He's the one who makes justification possible. Works are the evidence that we've been justified. And in the middle, faith is the key. Faith is the means, the sole means by which we are justified. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus. The Catholic Church explicitly denies this. Council of Trent, 
authoritatively states, if anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required in order to cooperate, in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. That's not the gospel. Martin Luther said it well. Justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. In the words of Calvin, it's justification by faith alone that's the hinge upon which everything turns. I put the Heidelberg Catechism in here, so don't confuse that with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This catechism is just a teaching tool in evangelical Protestantism and history. It's not intended to be authoritative in any way, but it puts it so well. So our big question, remember the big question for every one of our lives, everyone in the world, how are you righteous before God? Here's the answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, that I'm still ever prone to do all that is to all that is evil. Nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Praise God for this gospel. So proclaim it. That's the whole point here. Proclaim justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone with passion. Particularly in conversations with people in the Catholic Church, point out the major differences with respect to show how it's a false gospel to say that faith and works both lead to justification. Show how the true gospel clearly states faith alone leads to justification. Show how it's a false gospel to say that you're pro- you progress in justification as grace is infused into you by works. The true gospel says no, you rejoice in justification as the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you by God. Open your Bible and just show how it's a false gospel to say that you should be anxious about future justification, even sure, unsure. Show how this gospel, that that this is no gospel. It's not good, good news at all. The Bible actually teaches the opposite. The true gospel says you can be assured of future justification. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you. Believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We've already seen Ephesians 1. You're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You can know you have eternal life through faith in Jesus. So point out these differences with respect. And I I would add here, I want to be clear. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that every Catholic believes a false gospel. I believe there are some Catholics, I've met Catholics who believe as far as, I can tell as far as they're expressing, like the true gospel. Some who might even be surprised to hear that this is what the Catholic Church teaches. Because maybe they have believed the true gospel, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But that's where, with my friends who are or have been Catholic, if they do believe the true gospel, just always ask the question, why are you part of a church that officially, like officially, contradicts the gospel you believe? And officially spreads a false gospel? Just this week, I was so, ah, my heart just sunk when I saw, and we've seen recent comments from the Pope questioning hell and just some major Christian doctrines, but then this conversation with a, a boy whose dad had recently died, his dad was an atheist, an unbeliever, and the, he went up to the Pope asking, is his father in heaven? And he told us, told the Pope that his dad was a good man, but he was not a believer. So the Pope looks at a crowd of kids. He was taking questions from him, and he says to the crowd of kids, do you think God would leave someone like that, who even though he wasn't a believer, <laughs> but had his son baptized because the, the child has been baptized, do you think God would leave this dad far from him for eternity? He asked the kids, and all the kids yelled, no. No, that he would be with God. And the Pope said, there's your answer. Because he is a good man who had his son baptized. And it's, it's an emotionally almost moving video. Is this child is just with the Pope. And it sounds so good, but it's not true. And Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Like, it's not true. And a, a billion people need to see it's not true. And we need to share it's not true. So whoever you are, like, live by this gospel. 
live by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, live by this gospel, and die for this gospel. And I don't mean that to sound dramatic. I mean that to sound serious. Like we can almost yawn, not just because we're tired, because we think, I don't know if this is that big a deal. I mean, it sounds like an issue of semantics to me, like change a couple words around, what's the difference? I hope you see the difference is massive. This is why Paul pleads, don't preach a different gospel. Don't let, don't add anything to faith in God's grace, anything to the gospel. Because when you add anything to the gospel, you lose everything in the gospel. When you add anything to the gospel, you lose everything in the gospel. That's why he says in Galatians 6, I'm writing this to you with as big a letters as I can. People were saying you have to work, in this case, to be circumcised in order to be saved. But all that does is cause you to boast in what you've done when you can't do anything. Paul says, my only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul says this because he was being persecuted for preaching a gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. And he's saying with as large letters as he can write, this doctrine is worth the defense of our lives. And it's not just Paul. It's followers of Christ throughout Christian history. So I kind of just pause for a minute. Maybe, maybe just you can take a break from your study guide. I just want to tell you a couple stories. A few stories. So I mentioned the Reformation. When this issue came ahead in the church, go with me to England for a minute. 1555, the church in England under fire, literally from a, quote, from a royal foe named Queen Mary. Over the next four years, 288 people would be burned at the stake for their Protestant faith. Men, women, church leaders, common laborers, children. The first J.C. Railroad to break the ice and cross the river as a martyr in Mary's reign was John Rogers. I don't know if you've ever heard of John Rogers. He got his education at Cambridge, became a Catholic priest, but then he became quickly disillusioned with the teachings of the Catholic Church and God's providence found himself in Holland where he met a man by the name of William Tyndale. Tyndale taught Rogers the Bible and the gospel. Rogers would never be the same. When Tyndale was arrested nine months after they met, he left his Old Testament manuscripts with Rogers, who in the days to come would compile them into a complete English Bible under the code name Thomas Matthew. The Matthews Bible would become the first officially authorized version of the Bible in the, ling- in, in the English language. The Lord using this man to open the eyes and minds of hearts to Jesus and the scriptures. Rogers went on to pastor in Germany, but his heart was for the people of England. So re- he returned to London in 1548 with his wife, Ariana, and their eight children at the time. There he preached and pastored safely under the reign of King Edward VI until the day when Edward died, and soon thereafter, Edward's half-sister Mary proclaimed herself queen. Rogers knew where Mary stood on religion, steadfast with the church at Rome against all Protestant teachings. She arrived in London on Thursday, August 3rd, 1553. Rogers was appointed to preach the following Sunday. This was his moment, and he boldly proclaimed the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He warned the church against all pestilent popery and idolatry. Commenting on Rogers' sermon that day, one biographer said there was never any position in the whole history of the Reformation, all things considered, where the responsibilities thrown upon a single man were greater and the results more important. The same historian went on to say of Rogers, his conduct that day was more than noble. It was magnificent. But Rogers' sermon that day would be his last. A week later, he was placed under house arrest with his wife and now 10 children with another on the way. Six months later, he was put in prison where he would live in cruel conditions for the next year. That led to January 1555, where he was summarily examined on three occasions, subsequently condemned for two offenses. One, standing against the church at Rome, and two, saying that in the sacrament of the altar, there is not substantially nor really the natural body and blood of Christ. Rogers hadn't been able to communicate with his wife the entire time he'd been in prison. He'd never even met his youngest child. So he pleaded for an opportunity to see them, at least speak to her before he died. That request was refused. The next morning he was roused from his cell. He was led outside to the streets of the parish he once pastored. He walked in the shadow of the church where he had preached, thousands of spectators lining the way. And in that sea of faces, he saw his family. His wife holding a baby, the first time he'd ever laid eyes on his youngest child, with 10 of his other children standing beside, looking at their dad. One writer said their anxious faces were all fixed on him and their voices of pain reached his ears. Another remarked, it's difficult even to imagine anything more tender and affecting than this parting scene, this last adieu to a beloved wife and so numerous an offspring, all in tears. He stood the shock with the feelings of a father and husband, but with the unshaken confidence of a Christian marching to his death. John Fox in his Book of Martyrs tells us that he walked calmly to the stake. When he arrived, the sheriff gave him one last opportunity to recant, revoke his confession of faith, to which he responded, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Within moments, the, feet, the fire at Roger's feet was set ablaze. His body slowly began to burn. And as he lifted his arms high in the air, Ryle said the enthusiasm of the crowds knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. 
For up to that day, he wrote, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death, and they could hardly believe that some would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. And some it would be. Within days, others would face the same fate. Nicholas Ridley, Ridley was a fellow prisoner with Rogers. He wrote to the other pastors who had been in prison, saying, I thank our God and Heavenly Father by Christ that since I heard of our dear brother Rogers departing and stout confession of Christ and his truth even to the death, since that time I say I have no longer felt any lumpish heaviness in my own heart. John Leaf, a 19-year-old apprentice of John Rogers, was arrested, asked if he believed what Rogers taught. This 19-year-old answered not only did he believe every doctrine Rogers taught him from the God's word, but he was ready to meet the same death that Rogers had faced. So he did, history says, burned alive a 19-year-old with a cheerfulness and an unshaken resolution that were remarkable for one so young and that would have pleased his teacher in the faith. John Rogers, Nicholas Ridley, John Leaf, I could read 285 other names who would follow in the fire of their footsteps across England under the reign of Queen Mary. So here's the question. Why did they die? And the answer to that question totally surprised me. J.C. Rowell wrote a paper entitled The Burning of Our English Reformers and the Reason Why They Were Burned, and the paper so struck me because in it, he wrote, listen to this, great indeed would be our mistake if we suppose that these martyrs suffered for the vague charge of refusing submission to the Pope or desiring to maintain the independence of the church in England, nothing of the kind. The principal reason why they were burned was because they refused one of the peculiar doctrines of the Romish church. On that doctrine, in almost every case, hinged their life or death. If they admitted it, they might live. If they refused it, they must die. He continued, the doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ and the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. And it's true. John Rogers recounted his interrogation by the church. He said, I was asked whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary and hanged on the cross, really and substantially. I answered, I think it would be false. I cannot understand really and substantially to signify otherwise than corporally. But corporally, Christ is only in heaven. So Christ cannot be corporally in your sacrament. The same statement made by subsequent men and women, church leaders, common laborers, Rollins White was a fisherman. He couldn't read. He had his son taught to read so that every night his family would gather around the table after dinner and the boy would read his new English Bible to the family. In the course of doing that, the father came to believe in salvation through faith in God's mercy. When that faith became public, he was condemned to die. And history tells us he came to the place where his poor wife and children stood weeping and the sight of them so pierced his heart that tears trickled down his face. When everything was ready, they set white on the stake, then erected a stand upon which a priest stepped up and began speaking about the Catholic doctrine of the sacraments. White cried out, you wicked hypocrite, do you to presume to prove your false doctrine by scripture? Look in the text. Did not Christ say, do this in remembrance of me? And he's preaching to him there with the stake, immediately lit the fire. Fox says his legs were so quickly consumed by the flames that his body briskly fell over and burned. John Hollier, taken to the stake, bound with a chain, placed in a pitch barrel. Fire applied to the reeds and wood. As he began to burn, people started throwing books into the fire to be burned with him. One of the books was on the communion service. It was a book that countered Catholic teaching on the Lord's Supper. It taught salvation through faith alone. Hollier caught the book, held it high above the flames, opened it and read it joyfully until the fire and smoke deprived him of sight. Then he pressed the book to his heart, thanking God for giving him this precious gift in his last moments. And it wasn't just men. Agnes Snoth, Anne Wright, Joan Soule, Joan Katmer, four women alongside one man, John Lomas, questioned concerning transubstantiation, sentenced to burn together on two stakes in one fire where Fox says they sang hosannas until the breath of life was extinct. extinct. Are, you, are you hearing this? Like, why did these reformers die? They died for the Lord's Supper. They died because they knew that Rome's doctrine of real presence undercut gospel grace. Because if receiving communion involves receiving Christ, if eating the communion feast is necessary to obtain Christ's forgiveness, if works are needed for justification, then man's merit becomes a means for obtaining Christ's mercy, and they'd have nothing to do with it. A doctrine like that was decisive for them. Truth like that was not trivial for them. What not semantics? No, a pastor looks into the eyes of his wife and 11 kids, one of whom he's never even held. A fisherman looks into the eyes of his wife and children, including his little boy who first taught him the, the gospel through reading the Bible. And together they say, salvation by God's mercy separate from your merit is worth your life. It's all of mercy, kids. It's all of mercy, my bride. If we lose this, we lose everything. We have hope not in our merit, only in his mercy. Not in our merit, his merit. 
doctrine like this matters. How, how we understand God's word matters, how we understand God's worship matters. A doctrine like the Lord's Supper is worth the defense of our lives. But I fear we live in a day now where a doctrine like this is diluted. Like, we don't think it's a big deal when it's a massive deal. How we're made right before God, there's no more massive deal than this. And not just us, others too, with the Catholic teaching on justification. Do we realize what we're talking about? We're talking about a billion people. Half the supposed global Christian population population who is under the teaching of a fraudulent imitation of the gospel that deceives. I'll leave it to you regarding whether or not Catholicism is a cult, particularly when it comes to that second part of our definition, how it's usually attached to one leader in a Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell kind of way. You could point to the Pope in this way, but there's obviously not just been one. There's been 266 or so, but regardless of definition, let's be abundantly clear. Justification by faith plus works officially taught by the Catholic Church is a counterfeit gospel that condemns. It causes people to put their faith in what they do instead of solely trusting in what Christ has done. So don't buy it and don't believe it. And brothers and sisters in Christ who know the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Proclaim that good news. Risk your reputation. Pay whatever price to proclaim this good news. Listen, listen closely. These martyrs in the Reformation didn't die just because they believed the gospel. They died because they broadcast the gospel. They didn't just die because they studied it. They died because they spoke it. If you stay silent about your faith, you stay safe from risk in this world. It's when you speak about your faith that you step into risk in this world. And that's what these reformers did. They shared it in their homes. They taught it in their churches. They proclaimed it in their towns. And it cost them everything. Pastors who are listening, John Rogers had a choice that day Mary came to London. He could preach a good sermon from a random text. He could keep his life. He could keep his pastorate. He can continue as a dad, as a husband. Or he could preach a gospel sermon filled with truth and he could lose his life. And John Rogers chose the latter. Why? Because he couldn't keep this good news to himself. He didn't just love the gospel. He loved people who needed the gospel and he was willing to give his life so they might know it. That's what we're after tonight. Not just soaking in the gospel, but spreading it. And right before Rogers died, that's exactly what he did. He exhorted everybody watching his execution to embrace the gospel. Fox says, by his death, he demonstrated the reality of the ancient observation that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. For instead of being intimidated by the severity of his sufferings, multitudes were encouraged by his magnanimous example. And many who had no religion were led to inquire into the cause for which pious, learned, and benevolent men were so contented to lay down their lives. And thus they were changed from atheists or Catholics by the grace of God to the profession of the gospel. And here's the beauty, right? You have nothing to be afraid of. In proclaiming this gospel, the French ambassador, after observing Roger's death, wrote home his description of the scene. And he said, it was as if this man was walking to his wedding. Roland Taylor was about two miles from the place where he would die. The sheriff asked him how he felt. His reply, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better, for I am now almost at home. I lack but just two styles to go over, and I am even at my father's house. John Bradford, who was burned with the 19-year-old John Leith that I mentioned earlier, kissed his stake and then turned to that 19-year-old and said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Helen Stark, a mom with a newborn child, was sentenced to be put into a sack and drowned. Her husband also sentenced to die, but separate from him. He would die first, then her. So she followed him to his execution, gave him a kiss, and said, Husband, rejoice, for we have lived together many joyful days. But this day in which we must die ought to be most joyful unto us both, because we must have joy forever. Therefore, I will not bid you good night, for we shall suddenly meet with joy in the kingdom of heaven. She was then taken to the place where she would be drowned, where she entrusted her newborn child and other children to the neighbor's care and was plunged to her death. All these men and women knew that this gospel was worth their lives and they gave their lives so that others might know it. May that be the commentary on our lives. We're, we're talking about the good news of how God saves his people for eternity from their sins by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So let's give our lives so that others might know it. Let's, let's pray. Oh God, we praise you for this truth. We praise you for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We praise you for declaring us as sinners, righteous before you, based on your grace toward us. All glory be to your name. So help us to share this good news, we pray. We pray especially for Catholic friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, 
Catholic men and women, kids all around the world. We pray that you would open eyes to the beauty of your grace in the gospel. God, we pray that you would open eyes to the truth of the gospel. And please use this. Please help us to know how best to share this good news. Help us to walk through it in your word. But God, your spirit alone can do this. So we pray, we pray, we pray. Oh God, please, please draw Catholic friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.